you have elementary age kids or below, we would love for them to be a part of what we have going on. Right outside this door here, followed by Mr. Patrick, anybody else, Miss Barbara's out there. Well, those of you that <clears throat> were here last week will know that we have climbed back aboard the Axe train. Um, we picked it back up. We took most of it off for the summer uh, with kind of travel schedules of mine and whatnot. We kind of took a little bit of a, of a hiatus, but we have jumped back on the Axe train. And after this morning, we will be one chapter away from wrapping the whole thing up. It has been, uh, this is week 65. It's taken us over almost, it'll be two years in October, so pushing two years. We've gone through every movement, every verse, every thought, and it's been really an epic journey. It was one I began two years ago, and I had no idea where we were ending up or how we would get there, how long it would take us, and now this end really is in sight, but what we're going to discover as we hit Acts 28 in the next couple weeks is that the book never really ends. The church just kind of keeps going on, and so there really is no end in Sight. But in this movement, we've seen and been brought into some of the most incredible relationships and stories ever told in history. And the great thing about the book of Acts is that it's not a historical retell or a, a series of accounts or pictures that we can remember. But as I've been saying all these weeks, it's really a call. It's the call on our lives, as, our lives as followers of Christ, and it's the call of the church. It's who we're supposed to be and how we navigate lives that follow Jesus. It's really the call of Christ followers. And as our church moves and grows, the book of Acts is our call. It's what we're called to look and be like. And so this whole picture that we've gone through is really a, a kind of a, a picture of what the church is supposed to be, community and fellowship and taking the gospel into the world and living in a way that cared for each other. I mean, it's just an, an incredible, incredible picture. And so um, I promised those of you here last week that I would not do what I did last week. I did this two-and-a-half-year, like, 50-minute recap of, uh, of the whole story. So if you weren't here last week and you're curious how Paul got on a boat that's falling apart, starving to death for 14 days in the middle of the Adriatic Sea— then you're going to want to go and listen to last week's catch-up because I retell all the history uh, of about two and a half years of how Paul kind of ended up there. I'm not going to do it today. I'll give you the really short version because what's happened in Paul's life has been incredibly remarkable. I mean, two and a half years ago, he entered Jerusalem to an incredibly hostile crowd, almost a riot. He was arrested by Roman soldiers that ended up actually saving his life. Then he was stretched out on a table to be beaten and tortured when they realized he was a uh, a Roman citizen. They took him back before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, and they were so angry at Paul that they literally started tearing him limb from limb. And so the Romans arrested Paul again, saving his life. Paul learns of a murder plot of how the Jewish people were going to try and kill him, to ambush him. And the Romans escort him out of town from Jerusalem to Caesarea with 470 soldiers to go stand trial three separate times before two governors and a king and that king's sister girlfriend Paul stands trial and he is not found guilty ever in fact he's found innocent but instead of being set free right on these death penalty charges he's put in jail and left there for two and a half 
years. And when it's finally time for him to be let go, instead of being set free, he's put on a boat and sent to Rome, 2,000 miles away from Caesarea by boat to go stand trial before the most brutal ruler and emperor that Rome would ever know, a guy by the name of Nero, who is literally single-handedly kind of responsible for what will be the most horrific outpouring of persecution on Christians the world really uh, we'll, would know up until that point. And throughout history, we've had a lot of those things. But Nero was the worst. And he's sent to stand trial before him. Takes two months of a journey by two different boats. And he finds himself now in the middle of the Adriatic Sea, blown off course in a 14-day raging storm that Luke calls a northeaster that is literally tearing the boat apart. So much that they have run the straps from the lifeboat that was dragging behind him underneath the boat to try and hold it together. They haven't eaten. They've pretty much given up hope, right? And they're being beat to death by the waves in the middle of the Adriatic Sea. This is Paul's two and a half years, heading into winter, still 500 or so miles away from Rome, and hearing from an angel of the Lord that they're going to shipwreck. He's going to live, but they're going to crash the boat. That's Paul's life. And I told everybody last week, I said... Man, it's been such an emotional and spiritual and physical roller coaster for Paul that at some point in time we expect him to just go, Are you kidding me? I mean, really? This is what's unfolded for my life? Will there ever be a break, God? Will these trials ever stop? Will the beatings just ever quit? Or will I deal with this stuff forever? And we expect Paul to do that, or I do, because that's where my heart would be. God, I said I would follow you. I said I would do these things. I gave my life to you, and I am taking beating after beating after beating after beating of life, and you just seem to keep them coming, right? And maybe Paul had those thoughts. We don't know, but essentially, we don't see them ever come to the surface. Paul really just sort of has this sense, this sense that God is in absolute control and that he has put a call in his life, and Paul was going to take whatever that meant to be obedient and faithful to the call of Jesus. God, I long for my life, I long for my life to be at a place where that's how confident I am in God's call on me. Like, Lord, whatever life brings, whatever that is, whatever things keep happening, whatever struggles keep popping up, or just whatever inconsistencies or hurts there are in my heart, like, I trust you, and I believe that you are God and that you are faithful. And Paul is in the middle of this crazy season of just what we would look at and say setback after setback after setback, right? But in the middle of all that, he's confident and faithful. And now he's facing what he thought was death, but what the Lord would tell him is going to be not death, just more struggle, more shipwreck, more hurt, more pain, and that ultimately God has a plan. And so last week we saw this. They left by boat, they hit this storm, blows them off course, two months on this boat, they actually switch boats, two months on these two boats, it's a huge vessel, it's holding 276 people, uh, filled with prisoners and Roman guards and passengers that are going all the way across what is now the Adriatic Sea, and they sail into October, which is an incredibly difficult time to sail. In fact, ancient sort of studies tell us that if you sail in November in that area, it was suicidal. October was brutal. Everybody got off the water in September. It's mid-October after the uh, uh, sort of Jewish feasts have happened, so we kind of have a schedule, the calendars, and the end. The winds and the waves are brutal. And, they, and everybody on board thinks they're actually going to die. 
and they start throwing all the ship's cargo overboard, right? They start throwing all the tackle overboard, all the things that you would need to actually sail. They're just tossing them loose. And Paul gathers everybody, and we learned this last week, in the middle of the night, and he gathers everybody, and he speaks to them, and he says, listen, I I wanted you, you should have listened to me. I told you that this didn't have to happen this way because Paul had told them not to keep sailing, but the sailors did anyway. And Paul says, look, it shouldn't have happened, but I want to tell you something. No one's going to die because last night an angel of the Lord, the God whom I serve and to whom I belong, came and he stood next to me and he told me that I must stand trial before Caesar. And so he has graciously given me, this is what the angel of the Lord is telling Paul, graciously given me the life of everybody on board, right? You're all going to survive. That's the good news. The bad news is the boat's going to crash and we're going to get stranded on an island. But that was the story, right? And so Paul, we left off last week with Paul sharing that truth uh, with this group of 276 passengers that the boat they're on is going to crash, but that Paul has just told them they're all going to survive. But Paul's on trial for his very life, and he's one of only three Christians on the boat, and so most people don't believe him anyway. And we're going to pick up right at that moment as things go from bad to really worse. And we're going to see what happens in the middle of this storm and shipwreck. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Acts 27. We're going to pick up in 2727, and we're going to finish the remainder of that chaotic uh, time at sea. And we're going to see what happens uh, with that boat. And and I'm going to point out a few things about Paul's life that that I think we should kind of glance at and hang on to. And that's kind of where we'll be today. So let's take a moment, and let's just pray, and then we'll open the Word together. God, I thank you um, that your Word is timeless. I thank you, God, that it is perfect. That you tell us, Lord, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart, that it is your very breath. You call it Theopunestos, which is the breath of God. Lord, you have breathed life into it, and an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and we don't take that lightly. So, Lord, teach our hearts this morning. Teach our hearts through your word. God, comfort those that need to be comforted. Encourage those who need to be encouraged. God, convict those who need to be convicted. God, speak to us. Take a moment in your own heart, just as you sit here before we open God's word, and just ask the Lord to teach you something. I don't know what that is. Maybe you don't know what that is. Just ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. take a moment and pray for someone beside you or around you. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in them. Maybe you know their name, maybe you don't. Just pray for them. Pray that God would would just move in their hearts this morning. Lord, we turn this entire morning over to you. We trust you. Lord, even when it's hard to trust you, even when storms rage, even when boats break apart, even when one day turns into five that turn into two and a half years, even when boats break apart, God, we trust you. Convict our hearts, push us, challenge us, encourage us, Lord. We ask that you would do these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we'll look at verse 27, 27, 27, and we're going to finish that chapter. Raging storm. We're going to pick up uh, as that storm kind of turns into a shipwreck. So this is what happens. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. 
When about midnight the sailors sensed that they were approaching land, they took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing they would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors set the lifeboat, let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. And then Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes and held, that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense. You have gone from, you have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread. He gave thanks to God in front of all of them, and then he broke it, and he began to eat. They were all encouraged, and they ate some food for themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they had wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. And when daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail into the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground, and the bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life, and he kept them from carrying out their plan. And he ordered that those that could to swim, that those that could swim, to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get on planks and pieces of the ship. And in this way, everyone reached land safely. So it's been two months at sea. Uh, for the past 14 nights, they have taken a beating from what Luke calls in the previous part of this chapter from a nor'easter. These winds that are just hurricane force that are hammering these boats. And it is just going on and on and on. And Luke tells us that for 14 nights, this was last week, they never saw the sun or the moon, meaning the storm was just absolutely raging. And they have thrown the tackle and they have thrown the cargo and they've thrown everything overboard. And on the 14th night, they get to this place where things are getting extremely and incredibly desperate. So the sailors, the professionals on board, begin to sense that they're being driven into land. Now you remember, it's midnight. There are no lights outside of lanterns. There's no electricity or anything like that. But they begin to sense that they're getting close to land. Maybe they can hear the breakers, maybe not. But they sailors, the actual professionals, sense they're getting close. So it says they take soundings, which is really just a way of taking a weighted line, dropping it off the edge of the boat, letting it hit the ground or uh, on the seabed, pulling it up and kind of knowing, well, that's 120 feet or whatever. Well, they did that, and it was 120 feet, and they did it again a short time later, and it was 90, meaning that they were getting quickly close to shore. And they begin to think, because they can't see anything, that if they get close enough, they're going to be dashed or broken apart on the rocks, right? And so what they do is they basically decide that they have to throw all the remaining anchors overboard to try and hold the ship fast until daylight, because they can't see anything. So they go to the back of the boat, and they throw over the four anchors, hoping to sort of drag the ship to a halt, and wait there in the waves and the storm and the driving rain and all that until morning. Well, the sailors aren't real optimistic about that plan, are they? They kind of do it, but then they all go to the front, acting like they're going to throw anchors over the front, and they take the lifeboat, and they throw it over, and they begin to lower it down because they're thinking, we're out of here. Like, this is not going to end well, 
right? The professional people on board. Well, Paul sees this. He knows what's happening. And he looks at the centurion Julius and the other guards and he says, hey, listen, I just want to remind you that if those guys get away, you're going to die, right? Because what happens when all the professional sailors take off? We're going to steer this thing? Like, we're going to get it into the land? There's no way. We have to have them. If they escape, we die. Well, the Roman soldiers don't want to die, so they go over there and they cut the lifeboat away, and it sails away or flops away or whatever, and now all the sailors and people are all sort of stuck on this boat together, and they just are basically hoping for daylight. Well, about dawn, or just before dawn, Paul huddles everyone together, right? All 276 people. They get on the deck of this boat or underneath it or wherever. Not probably not underneath it, but inside it or whatever, wherever they are. And he gets them all together and he basically talks to them, right? He speaks to them. This is the second time he's done it. He did it earlier when he told them all to take courage. And he told them the story about how the angel of the Lord had showed up and had told him that they were going to be okay. And he told them to take courage, But this time he gathered them all together and he says, look, for 14 days, none of us have eaten. Things have been so harrowing, so frightening that we haven't even had a chance to eat. Like, we're thinking this is a storm, but you've got to understand, this raging hurricane-style storm has so frightened all of them or has so torn the boat apart, there hasn't even been time to eat. They've basically just been holding on to things for their lives. For 14 days, he said, we have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. So no one's eaten. And he says, listen, I urge you to take some food. You're going to need it to survive. Not one of you, reminding them what, what the angel Lord had told him, not one of you will lose a single hair of your head. And after he said this, he took bread and he gave thanks in front of all of it. Remember, he's one of three believers on board, takes bread, gives thanks of all, then breaks it. And then he begins to eat, right? Paul begins to eat. When they see he eat, him eat, they're all encouraged. They all eat food themselves. And together, all 276 of them ate until they were full. Then they took the grain that was left, and they threw it overboard, trying to lighten the ship. Because the lighter we can get the ship, the more it will come out of the water, and the closer we can get into the beach come morning. Well, when daylight comes, they, they see land. They don't recognize it. They have no idea where they are. But they see a sandy beach. And they think, if we could just get the boat up there close enough, we can survive. Now, it's amazing, but not everybody here knows how to swim right? We're on a boat in the middle of the ocean. You think you want to take a lesson or two, but nonetheless, they don't all know how to swim. And so they, they basically hoist the sail, they throw everything over, and they ram the boat into what is a sandbar. And the bow sticks in there so hard that the stern is being broken apart by the waves that are crashing over. And the soldiers think, that's it. Everyone's going to go their own way. We have to kill the prisoners. Now, those of you who've been with us for a while will recognize this. We've seen Paul in prison multiple times. And what happens is that when a Roman soldier or a centurion is guarding a prisoner, if that prisoner escapes, the soldier has to pay the penalty that was due that prisoner. And these prisoners, like Paul, are almost likely facing the death penalty. So if these prisoners escape, the guards, the soldiers, the centurions have to pay that price. So they're going to die if they lose their uh, prisoners. So knowing this, they come up with this plan, we're just going to murder or kill all the prisoners and then we'll live. But Paul has found this incredible favor with Julius, who was the head centurion over all this kind of Roman guards and prisoners. And he's found great favor. And Julius wants to spare Paul's life because, of course, God is in control of everything. And he kind of foils the plan and says, look, we're not going to kill him or whatever. And so finally they say, fine. If you can swim, jump over, swim for sure. If you can't, I don't know, grab that piece of wood and hopefully you'll make it. And that's kind of what they do. And every single one of them, it ends, every single person, all 276, make it uh, without 
incident, everyone reached land safely, just as the angel of the Lord had told Paul a few nights earlier. I mean, this is an crazy two and a half years, right? I mean, I know that you've been through some stuff, right? You've had some difficulties. I've had difficulties. Life has been hard, but man, not like this, right? Not like Paul's two and a half years that he has walked through. He's now swimming for his life from a boat to an island they don't know in the middle of a storm. Man, life is, is chaos. And I think a lot about my own heart, and I try and place myself in movements of Scripture as I read them, and I'm always just blown away by how kind of shallow my faith is. Like, it's just so shallow. And I look at Paul and the things that he's walked through, and I really long, like my heart longs to be at a place where I'm so confident and I'm so trusting that I believe that God is even at work when my ships begin to break apart and the storm doesn't look like it's going to stop and when, when things are just unanswerable. I want to be in a place where I just say, Jesus, I just trust you. It's not easy, but I trust you. And there's some things that we see in this text that I want to point to about Paul that I think are are really important takeaways. And one is, is, the first one is really sort of, covers a much bigger picture than just what unfolds today, but it's really this idea. That Paul is, he, he is aware and he hears the voice of the Lord, and he's confident, right, in God's call, even when life doesn't make sense. So it's kind of a long sentence, but there's really no other way to put it. That Paul can hear the voice of the Lord, he's in tune enough with the Holy Spirit to hear God's voice, and he's confident that God is in control even when life doesn't make sense. Now, God speaks to Paul in a lot of different ways in this book, right? He shows up in a blinding flash of light on Acts 9. He speaks to him through the subtle voice of his traveling companions. He speaks to him and whispers to his heart and tells him to go back to Jerusalem, even though what's waiting for them, him there is death or imprisonment or hostile anger, riots, things like that. Paul still hears the Lord calling. All of his friends say, you can't go back to Jerusalem. Do you know what waits for there? And Paul says, no, God has called me there. I'm confident of that, right? Jesus shows up in the middle of his life, in the middle of a Roman army barracks and says, look, don't be afraid. Take courage. And then in the middle of the Adriatic Sea in a raging storm when life is sort of hopeless, Paul hears an angel of the Lord speak to him and saying, listen, it's, it's going to be okay. Like, be courageous, I have a plan. You're going to stand trial before Caesar. It's not going to get easier, though, right? You're actually going to crash this boat, and you're going to be stuck on an island. But what I find remarkable about Paul is that he's able to hear God's voice clearly, even amongst all the noise. And there's a lot of noise in our life, right? There's a lot of distractions, there's a lot of stuff that are competing for our heartbeats and our minds. There's their own voices. There's the voice of the rational, right? Like surely God's not calling us back to Jerusalem where death and imprisonment wait. Surely my friends that love me, their voice is right. How can I hear God's voice amidst the voices of the rational, right? The other noise in our life, that the voices in us that say, man, you have blown it. You are a sinful disaster. There is no way God really loves you. I mean, no way God really forgives you. I mean, sure, God forgives people, but I mean, look at what you've done, right? And we listen to those, those voices, those lies, those things. We look in the mirror and we, we hear the Bible tell us that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made, that we are beloved. And we look in the mirror and we look at that thing and we say, I can't stand what I see because the noise in our life is competing for God, over God's voice. The chaos of 
family and school and work drowns out our desire to just spend time with him. And we begin to exchange God's voice and God's call for the noise, for the lies, for the untruth, for the safety. But all through Paul's journey with Jesus, from that road on Damascus on, he just clearly knows God's voice. And he's so deeply confident in it that even when life goes crazy wrong, or what we would say is crazy wrong, he trusts Jesus anyway. See, I want to be that confident about God's call in my life. And not the giant, huge call for life or whatever, but like just on the little things. Like, Trev, I am still God. Like, I am faithful. I love you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm in control of the wind and the waves, and I hold the storm in the palm of my hands. Like, that's the God I want to believe in. And all through Paul's life, he's just able to trust that when boats break apart, when five days turn into two and a half years, when ships begin to fall to pieces, when a, when a storm turns into a shipwreck, Paul just is so deeply confident that God is in control that he rests in it. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't have his moments, but he just, he just rests in it. And here we see that. This boat is going from shattering to shipwreck, Right? And it's not like there's light at the end of the tunnel. The light at the end of the tunnel for Paul is standing trial before the most brutal emperor Rome would ever know, right? The light at the end of the tunnel is not, hey, I get a new job with a big paycheck and everything works out and we get a new house and I finally get rid of this old car and God is good, amen. That's not Paul. Paul's light at the end of the tunnel is to probably stand before Nero and die because he believes in Jesus. Yet Paul, so supremely confident, so able to hear the voice of God over the noise. What's the noise in your life? What's drowning out what God is speaking to you and what God is saying to you? Have you let school or work just swamp and flood over every waking moment of you so that it's drowning out your peace? Have you let the struggles of your own financial world or your own marriage or your own whatever drown out the truth that God has been whispering and speaking to your heart? I want you to know what God is saying to you. I want you to know him that well, his voice that well, that even when the people around you say, that's not God, you can say, I believe in my heart that it is, and he is God even in the midst of this storm, right? I mean, how many of us will look at Paul's life and be like, well, God's closing doors, right and left, jail, windows, things, the windows are all closed, I'm going the other way. Paul is so confident that even in storms and shipwrecks, he just believes Jesus. The second thing that we really see there is that, and this is not a surprise, and it shouldn't be a surprise, but Paul was always looking for ways to talk about Jesus, right? I mean, this is not a surprise. Paul's entire life was this. In fact, he gives his whole life motive away when standing before King Agrippa and King Agrippa's sister-girlfriend, and he, he, says, he says to him, he says, King Agrippa, you believe in the prophets of God, don't you? And this was a, oh, not that many months ago, right, in Paul's life. Do you believe in the prophets of God? Because King Agrippa was actually a Jewish person who was loyal and king of an area of Rome, and so he kind of played both sides of the fence. And, and Paul looks at him and says, King Agrippa, you believe in the prophets of God, don't you? In fact, you don't have to answer that. I know that you do. And Agrippa looks at Paul in front of this entire courtroom full of really important people, and he says, do you think that you can turn me into a Christian in just this little bit of a short time? And Paul says this. He said that really famous line, short time or long, doesn't matter. But I pray that you and everybody in this room would know what I know 
except for these chains, would be what I am except for these chains. In other words, my whole life is set up so that you would know Jesus. Now this is coming from Paul, who has had his life radically altered by Jesus. Remember our journey through the book of Acts, who he was? Paul was the sort of chief of self, kind of selfish living. Paul was the most highly educated. He was heading to a place of prominence. He was in charge of making sure that he would round up all these people that said they were following Jesus and either have them thrown in jail or give approval for their death. Which means that Paul was responsible firsthand for the death of the people that he now loves. You want to talk about how hard that would be to close your eyes at night? I mean, look, all of us have done terrible things, right? We've all done things we're not proud of, all done things we're ashamed of. We've all done things that we've asked God in the middle of the night to forgive us for. Imagine what Paul has done. Shattering families, having fathers ripped out of homes, brutally thrown in jail and beaten and murdered for their faith in Christ. Standing there, right, at the stoning of Stephen, holding the clothes of people that just heaved rocks on him and giving their approval. You want to talk about a conscience. This is that guy who has had his life completely redeemed by Jesus and set free, and he wants the world to know. And he does something really amazing in this text that's subtle yet super powerful. He gathers this whole group of people together, 276, of which he and Luke and Aristarchus, we know are the only believers, pagan sailors, people from all over the world, prisoners, murderers, all on this boat. And if you heard me read it, maybe you caught some things that might sound really familiar that Paul is doing in a very subtle way. Listen to what he says to them. Verse 33, just before dawn, he gets them all together and he says, For the last 14 days, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. When we glance at this passage, it's true, right? 14 days, no food. If you don't eat, you're going to die. But Paul's doing something that is really remarkable in these words and in a few other phrases after this that I'll get to that tie together that we miss when we don't really understand language and how language works. But the Greek word that Paul uses there is actually the word sotieras, which is the word for salvation. 20 times it's used in the New Testament. This is the only one where our translators translate it as physical survival. Every other time it's translated as for your salvation or for salvation. But this time it's translated here because it makes absolute sense that if you don't eat at 14 days, you're going to die, right? But there is another word for physical survival in the Greek. They just, Paul doesn't use it. He actually uses a spiritual word saying you will need this for your salvation, which is interesting in itself. It also could mean physical survival, but what he ties on to it next is really important. He says, you will need it for your salvation, for your survival. Not one of you will lose a single hair from your head. Now, is Paul being literal? Do you think when they jump overboard and swim to the beach that every single one of them won't lose one single hair from their head? Of course not, right? Raging waves and sea. I mean, maybe some of them are older, falling out anyway. I mean, their hair is coming out, right? But what is Paul doing? Matthew 1030, you may remember, Jesus is sending the 12 disciples out, and he's sending them into the countryside of the villages to go and heal the sick and to go and proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God, and they're all really afraid, actually. They've never done this without Jesus. And Jesus is sending them out, and he tells a story about how God cares for the sparrows, 
and how he loves them so deeply. And he looks at them and he says, listen, every single hair on your head is numbered, right? Don't be afraid. Basically telling them that God is in total and absolute control. There's nothing that God doesn't know, nothing that God is not moving and working through, that God is sovereign, and that even the hairs on your head, God knows them, right? And he gives them this sort of confident picture that says, I'm getting ready to go into the unknown, and yet the God of the universe knows every hair on my head. I I can be safe, and I can rest in that promise. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. So here's Paul saying, take bread, right? You're going to need to eat it for your survival, your salvation. You won't lose a single hair on your head. Reminding them that the angel of the Lord had told them they were going to survive, but also pointing them back to Jesus' own words. Paul's probably been talking about Jesus for two months anyway. But he just reminds him and them with subtle use of words of Jesus' own words, that God is in total and absolute control. And then he does the obvious, right? He takes this piece of bread, and in front of all of them, he gives thanks to God. God, I thank you for this, this meal. It blesses it, and then he breaks it. Right? Obviously, there's connections there to communion, the Lord's Supper. Now, we don't have any indication that he actually took communion with these people. He just ate the bread. But the words he uses are very intentional. Luke records them saying he took bread and he gave thanks, and after that he broke it, which is exactly what Jesus did and the promise that he gave them about his own faithfulness. What Paul is doing here is incredibly spiritual. It's very subtle, but it's pointing this panic-stricken, group of people that believe they're going to die to a bigger promise. And you got to understand, these people think they're dying, right? Paul's the only one on board that actually believes they're going to survive. They've thrown over all the ship's cargo, all the ship's tackle. The sailors have actually tried to escape. They've given up all hope. In fact, last week we saw them say, we've given all hope of survival. We've given it up. They believe they're going to die. The storm has not stopped. No one is confident. They're so scared they haven't even eaten food in two weeks. And Paul looks at this group of people and in a very subtle yet very intentional way is trying to show them that God is huge and amazing and in control. And he uses that to point them to a bigger picture. Paul is always about trusting and believing in this movement of God. And then he does something where it finally kind of leads by his life and his example. And in a really sort of not big way, it says that after he had done that, he took bread himself and he ate it. Right? Everybody else is petrified. He takes bread and he eats it. Not to say, let me just make sure I get mine first, right, of course. But he just, by demonstration, says it's going to be okay. Like, watch me. I'm going to eat. And it says that they all ate, and then it says they were encouraged. It's a small picture, but it's really powerful to me because what Paul is doing is he's demonstrating with his life his trust in Jesus, his trust in the Lord. It's one thing for us to say, God, I trust you. It's another thing to let our words and our life match that. Right? That should be our whole goal is that our our, our lives, our words, our actions match what our hearts cry. That if we cry, God, I trust you, that my actions and my words and my life and my example would echo those things from the very core of who I am. Paul, while not perfect, 
His life matched his trust and confidence in Jesus. I want my heart and my life to be there. I want to be somebody that's more than just says, God, I, I, I believe that you are in control. I believe that you are who you say. You want my life and my example to echo those truths. But that's all of our call, every single one of us, to live and believe the things that we say about God. That if you say that God is in control and that he is moving and that he is your God, then we have got to surrender our fears and our failures and our doubts and our struggles and trust that God is who he says he is. That when two days goes to two years and ships breaking apart go to shipwrecks, and storms go from one day to 14. That my heart is crying out and still echoing, God, I believe that you are who you say you are. Paul will ultimately make it to Rome. But the great surprise of the book of Acts, as we'll see, is we don't actually see Paul stand before the emperor. The book just ends. All that to not get to a pretty ending which is really what it means to follow Jesus. I, I don't know what tomorrow is. I don't know if I'm guaranteed one more breath, one more day, whatever. But God, today in this moment, right now, with everything I am, I want my life to be yours. I want my life to point to you. I want the people around me to see you in me. I want to so trust and believe in you in this moment that this moment leads me to tomorrow and the next and the next. And every day is a journey in me saying, yes, God, I trust you. I don't have to see the end. I've just got to see you in the moment. And maybe that's where you are today, right? Kind of racking your heart with questions and stuff and trying to look down the pipe of when I'm going to get married or when I'm going to finish school or how this is going to work out or what's going to happen with my children or whatever. When right here in this moment we're being called by God to just trust Him with this single breath. It will lead to another, it will lead to another. And then when the ships break apart and the storms begin to rage and things begin to happen, I'm trusting God in this moment, believing that He holds those in the palm of His hand. So whatever we're walking through today, this breath belongs to Jesus. And the next breath belongs to Jesus. And I'm going to take him a moment at a time, and I'm going to trust that God is who he says he is. Let's pray together. Lord, life has a way of going from calm to chaos in a matter of moments. Lord, a lot of us have walked through that personally. We have gone through tragic loss. We have gone through difficult seasons. We have gone through crazy transitions. We have moved our families. Uh, God, we have made mistakes. We have watched people that we love go through difficult things. We've lost jobs. We've walked life, and life has not necessarily been clean and easy. But God, in the middle of all that is this incredible, beautiful truth that you hold all things together. I mean, all things together. And that, Lord, you are in all things and through all things. And that, God, 
even in the middle of sometimes life's circumstances, or maybe even in the middle of life's mediocrity, where the seas seem really still and I just seem to be bobbing around, like you are still God in those moments. And so, Lord, my prayer this morning is that instead of trying to get down to the end of whatever this is, we would just find joy in our breath with you today. Right now, in this moment, we will not get a single day back. I will never have this breath again. We will never have this morning again. We will never have this moment. And I get to decide if I'm going to honor you and worship you and trust you in it. Whatever we're walking through, God, there may be a great light at the end of the tunnel or the, the tunnel may lead to another series of complicated steps. Whatever it is, God, I would rather follow you than walk that road alone. And so, God, help us learn from Paul's example today to trust you in the middle of life's uncertain moments, in the life's turbulent seas, in the middle of life's mediocrity, to draw this breath and say, this breath belongs to Jesus. And it's my gift to you, Lord, to be able to trust you in it. And I don't know what tomorrow holds, and I don't know how I get to the end of the road, but right now in this moment, like, I find joy in you, Jesus. I choose joy because you have redeemed my life. Paul trusted you, Jesus, because you saved him from death and destruction, and you turned his life around. You took him from sinful, broken humanity. To redeemed, life-filled, joy-filled follower of Christ. God, I don't want to be robbed by one moment. So help us not believe the lies. Lord, as we close our time in worship today, what I pray is that as we sing, our hearts would be crying out within us. That it would be a proclamation of truth. That God, even when things are chaotic, you are in those things. You are through those things. There is not one moment where you are not. Let us cling to the truth of who you are and that God, ultimately, you hold all things together and all things are under your control and this breath right now in this moment is yours and I am grateful 